0: for the Tony Parks Podcast. Hope your weekend was a good one. Thanks so much for making us a part of your day. You can connect with the show on all forms of social media by going to at Tony Parks 801 You can email me, TonyParks801 at gmail.com. I'm going to jump right into it today. We jump right into lifting the curtain. We do it uh, every single episode. I kind of give you a behind-the-scenes story or something funny of note uh, that has taken place in uh, my career, being involved in sports and entertainment. I'm going to get right into it. Uh, Doing the Hot Rod Hunley impersonation has always been a lot of fun. I was able to do it as a very young kid. Used to do the impersonation for my coaches, teachers, friends, everyone when I was a kid. So I still remember uh, actually calling a a pizza place once. I was about 13 or 14 years old. Called it, ordered a pizza as Hot Rod Hundley. It was uh, from a Papa John's in West Valley. Uh, I was with some friends. And and you'll know what sparked that memory, obviously, here in just a moment. Uh, We tried to get, like, free bread stuff or uh, breadsticks and soda and all that other stuff, but it didn't work. Um, but it was very possible though, at least I'd like to believe as a 13 year old, that the guy on the other line really bought into Hot Rod Hundley uh, ordering a pizza at that time. Um, Cause I didn't just know how to broadcast like Hot Rod Hunley; I also knew how to like talk like him. So whenever I call his daughter and we have a chance to talk every now and again, we'll, we'll tell stories and I'll recite his part of her story and it's, it's fun, because then I can have the conversation not in broadcast mode, but in conversation mode. Uh, it just felt very natural to me. Uh, so, yeah, it was fun. I could just call up and, yeah, I'll take uh, the two large pizza special, uh, one with pepperoni, one with sausage. And uh, could you throw in any, uh, you know, free breadsticks and uh, stuff like that? What do you say? Uh, no? Oh, okay, yeah. Well, the name is Rod Huntley. That's who the, uh, the order is for. Rod Huntley. And so I remember a good friend of mine named Aaron Gibbons just losing his mind laughing when I would do this. Uh, So fun times back in the day. Uh, But when I worked with Hot Rod, I'd never do it for him. He would always get really frustrated about it too because I would never do it for him. He would just like demand that I do it. And all of his friends and everybody would be standing around uh, laughing about it. And so one time he he demanded that I do it. Now, everybody's been telling me that you do this whole impersonation like me. Now everyone's laughing about it. I want to hear it from you. Everyone tells me, I want to hear it from you. And I would look at him and be like, I don't know what they're talking about, Hot Rod. And they would Bust up laughing like you know exactly what we're talking. About. Like I don't know, I don't know what they're talking about. And they're like, just do it, just do it for them. just do it. And I'd be like, jazz with the ball, stock down the middle, pass to Carl, hammer dunk, stocked in a Malone. Like I don't know, I don't know what they're talking about. And so they'd be laughing and going, that's not it, that's not, that's not how you do it. And so Hot Rod for years, uh, I could tell was was bothered about it. He and I started working together kind of uh, o three ish, o four ish when we started to see one another uh, from here and there and have conversations. So anyway, in 2008, it was an election year and there was a commercial for someone and I think it was Randy Orriucci, um, but there was a hot rod impersonation and it was awful, by the way. It was obviously satire, totally exaggerated, uh, made quite a bad mockery of him. Um, and I remember we played that commercial on our station at KFan during the time. Well, he hears this commercial, I know he's driving around or whatever, and he hears the commercial, so he knows that I do a Hot Rod impersonation, he hears this commercial, and he thinks it's me. He totally thinks it's me. So I see him at the arena before a game. We're up there in the upper broadcast position by Section G, it's uh, the area that, that David Locke and Ron Boone are in now, and he is absolutely furious with me. Absolutely. I mean, he is just going ballistic. I would never do something like that to you. You know that? I I cannot believe you would do that. I'd never do something like that to you. I've heard about all of this, and now I hear it on the radio, and you're out there making a mockery of me. I don't This is terrible. I mean, he just, he was so pissed. And everyone's trying to calm him down. I'm trying to calm him down uh, because they're trying to explain to him that it wasn't me. I'm trying to explain to him that it wasn't me. So finally, I can tell it's bothering him so badly. So, some of his friends that are there and then other people on the PR staff, they're like, here, here, just do the impersonation for him so we can make sure he knows that this wasn't you and that we can kind of put this to rest. So, I finally, I let him know, fine, I'll, I'll do it for you. And I, you know, I, I do some highlight, I don't know which one, like... You know, here's Magic with the ball right side, jump shot up, no good, rebound, big mark, outlet to Stock, Jazz on the run, Stock down the middle, bounce pass to Carl, hammered the mailman, in your face, mama, Carl with 32 points, Stock with 14 assists, Jazz up, 98-94, timeout, L.A., and so as I'm doing the impersonation of him, I can see his eyes getting big. And his face is kind of changing. It's like that, what am I hearing? What am I looking at? And, and he's hearing this whole thing, and I can see all this happening, but I can't tell in the moment if he's impressed, if he wants to kill me, or maybe he's impressed and wants to kill me. I, I don't know exactly what's about to happen. So I kept a uh, decent distance from him uh, while I was doing this. And just I, I just wasn't quite sure... How he was going to take it, and everyone else is looking at him with this curious look on their faces because they can't really tell how he's going to take it. And at the end, he stops, has this kind of quizzical look, and he goes, "Yeah, that that wasn't you. No, that that wasn't you on the radio. Yeah, that that wasn't you. Okay." And then it just ended. Everybody just awkwardly went back to work. It was easily one of the craziest moments I've ever had with him because I wasn't quite sure how he was going to react and I didn't really know at the time how it was going to impact our relationship but luckily everything turned out just fine but that was that was the moment the only one time that I ever did the impersonation for him and uh yeah I was very scared at that moment and I'm glad everything turned out all right because as old as he was he was still quite a bit bigger than me and let me tell you I have never seen him that pissed off he was pissed Uh, when he heard the, uh, I think it was a Randy Oriuchi commercial, but I'm not sure. Anyway, quick side note, uh, I want to give a big amount of props to Courtney Tanner of the Salt Lake Tribune, who put together an incredible piece this weekend, reveals incredibly heinous and unfortunate details about what happened uh, with a guy that was assigned to the case involving Lauren McCluskey, Uh, McCluskey was the track and field athlete at the University of Utah who was murdered a couple of years ago by an ex-boyfriend that was extorting her and threatening her safety in many ways. Uh, That story and that saga has continued to go on since her death about uh, what might have been complacency, oversight, and just a failure uh, to jump to protect the safety of a potential victim and then an eventual victim. Uh, You'll want to read that in the Salt Lake Tribune. I don't want to spoil that whole thing. I want to make sure that you go and you read that because I thought her work was award-winning and tremendous based on the amount of time that she took to make it happen and her relentless efforts to continue to find the right information and the biggest thing, to ask the right questions along the way. And that transitions me into today's topic. Uh, So the last dance comes to an end last night. I thought this was a a really well-done documentary for the most part. The music was fascinating. Uh, The storytelling was really, really cool. I like some of the the behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, And more than anything, it just comes at a really good time for a lot of people missing sports and going through a lot right now. Like, I know that most people weren't looking forward to last night, right? Because it's going to bring back some some old bad memories as a jazz fan. Uh, But I enjoyed it, actually, because it was fun to revisit some of my favorite years as a sports fan. 97 and 98 was awesome for me as a fan, personally. Michigan wins the national title, Charles Woodson, the Heisman, the Jazz were in the finals, Sosa had a remarkable 66-homer year, and the Cubs won the wild card, went to the playoffs for the first time that I got to really enjoy and understand as a sports fan. And one of the things that I was looking forward to most was the story behind the flu game. Now, we know that two years ago, it came out to be a story about food poisoning, I thought there was a lot missing from that story that came out two years ago. And I was curious if some of the holes could get filled during this documentary now that everybody got to tell the story and they got to go through all of the different details. And I'll be honest, I thought the documentary flat out missed on this one. Flat out missed. I was really disappointed in this part of the documentary. Because I I thought it was very obvious that they did a really poor job of asking the questions during that part of those interviews with all of those people. From his friend, trainer, Jordan himself, any of the security guards, anybody that could have been involved or around that night. Very poor job of discussing kind of what actually happened. So last night they're talking about the flu game. We hear the story about how they've all they're ordering a pizza. All I'm ordering a pizza is about 10 or 10 30 at night. Five guys show up to deliver this one pizza. Very suspicious. And they're looking around and trying to peek inside of the room because they know it's Michael's room, according to, uh, I think it was Michael's trainer or his best friend. One of those guys made that uh, comment. Well, Rusty LaRue sent a tweet pic with all the fake names that were used to protect everyone's identity. So everybody there at that hotel has an alias, right? But my question ultimately is, How on earth is a pizza guy ever getting to the room in the first place? If you're with your security team, which Michael claims is there at the time, then someone should have been in the lobby to pick up this pizza at worst. You don't even give out a name that is from the room, even an alias, and you don't give out the room number. I don't have a doubt that that would be the protocol if this security team has been together for that long, has worked with Michael, and understands how big of a deal he is. You have the biggest icon currently in sports during the NBA finals, and you're ordering a pizza that comes straight to the room? I also would have suggested even that someone go and pick this pizza up as a carryout. But if you're going to do the uh, the delivery, you don't deliver it to the room. You don't give out the room number. You don't even give out the alias name. So you're, yeah, my name's Terry. I'm just going to go pick up carryout. If they don't have carryout, okay, okay. Terry, I'll be in the lobby. I'll see you when you get there. And then somebody goes down to that lobby to pick that up. That way, nobody has any idea who this pizza's for. They don't understand or know what room that it it is going to go into. They don't know any of that. No information, not even an alias name. They had to have done something like this before when Michael is doing anything. Because part of the reason why you have a security team that is the best when you're dealing with somebody like this is that they use extremely preventive measures for everything that happens. They are 50 miles ahead of anything. People who are hired that are constantly set to protect somebody like Michael are always thinking about every possible situation and every possible measure that they need to take to prevent something bad from happening. And I don't doubt that this security team was as good as any out there. I believe Michael when he says that because there's a lot you have to be ready for. And it's not like this is the first year that Michael's a big deal or that this situation is unprecedented. So the reason why you take these precautions is because word gets around about who's staying where. And Park City is not a really big town. You have major celebrities staying there at times throughout the year. So word could get around that the Bulls are staying at the hotel, especially with those in the service industries. So if someone orders a pizza, it's possible it's for a Bulls player. Let's head over and see who it might be for. If the pizza ends up getting ordered and you know what room number... Michael, who works over, or I shouldn't use the name Michael, let's say Trevor, who works over at the pizza place, knows Stacy at the front desk from the hotel because they've delivered there plenty of times they get to know each other, calls Stacey and says, hey, Stacy, who's staying in room 2323? Uh, well, the name is Terry Shadows, but the actual person, yeah, it's Michael Jordan's room. So that is one way something like that could happen. The most unlikely thing that would happen is, you know, they call the pizza place and say, come to room 2323, uh, and they go, yeah, the pizza's for Michael Jordan, and then the guy on the other line is, it is? Really? You betcha. And if you put extra sausage on the pizza, we'll give a generous tip. Wow, Michael Jordan? Like, that, that obviously is the most unlikely and most reckless. So I, I don't believe that's what happened in that situation. Based on their story, the most likely scenario is that you call the pizza place, you tell them the alias, you give them the room number, and then the pizza place is able to figure it out from there with the people they know at the hotel. So like I said, like Stacy knows Trevor or whoever, and they know that that's Michael Jordan's room. But my other thing there would be that the security team would do such a good job of protecting that that Michael's name is never connected to any room at all. It would just be, hey, these four rooms are under Phil Jackson, and then one of those is actually Michael's, or these four rooms are technically under fill-in-the-blank security guard. I have no idea, but the one thing they're doing is protecting the daylights out of Michael and to just order a pizza randomly that late at night and be like, yeah, have him bring it right up to Michael's room with no security protocol whatsoever? Something's not right. Something's just not right. Uh, The other scenario I was thinking of is the pizza place gets a hold of the alias list. And so they have that in case anybody ever calls. So if, you know, Jennifer Markson ever orders a pizza, they know it's actually Julia Roberts somehow, you know, throughout all of the the, uh, window of time that different people stay there at different times throughout the year. I mean, like, all these things are possible. But with the way they tell the story, something just doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up. You're the best security team any individual could ever have, and they're letting anyone walk through the lobby, up to your room, and then right to the front door in a small town where everyone there knows your team is staying. Everyone there. So the pizza gets delivered, according to them. Everyone in the room is really skeptical about what just happened. Whoa, five people, and they're looking around, and they're trying to get a peek inside, and they know it's Michael's room. So... All of these people, trainer and friend and security, they're all like, oh, we have a bad feeling about this. I'm not touching the pizza. Oh, but Michael, feel free. You go right ahead. So Michael eats the pizza anyway, then gets food poisoning, according to them, plays anyway, scores 38 points, Bulls take a 3-2 series lead. And after all that happens, like that's it. It's just an unfortunate situation that happens. Like, okay, end of story. No, no way. The first thing you do after all of that suspicion and everything that took place is you go to the front desk and you get any security footage that you can that would show these five guys walking around that hotel about to deliver a pizza. Then you go find out what pizza place delivered this pizza and you get any information you can. Who got the order? Who delivered it? How many people were working that night? Talk to the, del- uh, the delivery person. Who was with you that night? How many of them worked for the company? Why would you bring five people? You know? late on a Tuesday night? Would the restaurant even staff five people that late on a Tuesday night or on a Tuesday night at all? Did you know it was Michael's room? How did you find out it was Michael's room? How did you find out the bulls were even staying there? Was this food poisoning a true accident? If it is an accident, who else ordered a pizza that night from the pizza place? Maybe you can find that out. Maybe you can find out if anyone else got sick. With the suspicious activity that took place, there's potential foul play involved. Clearly, based on all this suspicious activity and the skepticism and everything around that, and, and even though Jordan didn't die from this, thank goodness, uh, there is the possibility that this was done with intent. And their hint is that this was done with intent. So if that's the case, you're following up. You're following up on all this. The next thing I do is find out if any of the people working at the front desk of the hotel have any connection to anyone that works at the pizza place. Because it would be likely that someone from the uh, front desk passed on the alias list or passed on the information about what room and who was where. That's the way that that would be done. I I say this because that guy who was a friend of Jordan's said they knew this was Michael's room. So the only way that they would know that is if someone from the hotel told them. Instead, no one does anything about this. No follow-up, no communication, no information. It's just, well, great game, Michael, 38 points. All's well that ends well. Hey, you know what we should do to celebrate? Let's order a pizza! Just kidding, Michael. Just messing with you. Just joshing. Like, no. No. With their story, something is really not adding up. Because this is supposed to be the best security team that could ever be put together for a player like this, and they're making several first-day-on-the-job-type mistakes? Weird. Really weird. And I don't know exactly what happened. I'm not going to say, hey, here's what I think happened. No, No, there's not enough for me to know, to have an idea of what happened, but I know that this story has way too many holes in it. Ahmad Rashad is like the personal friend of Michael Jordan. He hangs out with Michael. He's, you know, sitting in Michael's office before games. He sees Jordan in the locker room before game five, and he's reporting inaccurate information. He's reporting the flu. This is known as the flu game, but the food poisoning story with all these people that know Michael, that story doesn't come out until two years ago. So 20 years go by with everyone calling it the flu game and the actual story was food poisoning and Jordan's an innocent victim in this and while he's an innocent victim, they waited 20 years to tell this story. Why wouldn't you just tell the story then? No one's going to blame you if you, you know ate a bad pizza or you just had food poisoning. You wouldn't even have to say what it was from. There's no reason not to tell the true story of what happened right then. There's no reason not to. So instead, you just report and Michael Jordan is suffering from food poisoning and some uh, food that he had last night has disagreed with him as he comes into game five. And here's Ahmad Rashad. And then Ahmad can say, yeah, I spoke with Michael. You know, he's dealing with food poisoning. You know, he had dinner last night and just it happens because it does happen It happened with uh, Gordon Hayward. Game four of the uh, first round against the L.A. Clippers. It's a normal thing that can definitely happen. So why wouldn't you just tell the story of what happened? Why would you have to go with flu? I don't get that. I just, I just don't get that. So there's a lot of questions that are there that I don't think people involved with the documentary or the story that was printed two years ago, I can't remember if it was Sports Illustrated or whoever that reported this story the first time. There's a lot of questions that, that people just never asked. I mean, are they just scared of Michael Jordan or what? I don't understand that. So I'm I'm looking at it last night and I'm thinking, all right, you putting together the documentary, how are you not asking, hey, were the five people wearing any of the pizza company's apparel? Why wouldn't the security team or any of you uh, get the pizza for takeout or pick it up in the lobby and make sure there's not a trace of anything that could be connected to Michael Jordan during all of this? Why doesn't someone make absolute certain that nobody goes up to that room in the first place? What was the usual protocol when this would happen? What would you guys usually do? You guys have an insane amount of protocols that you exercise when it comes to Michael going anywhere or doing anything, but you couldn't handle a basic pizza delivery to a hotel room? And throughout all of that, you dropped the ball? What name did you give the pizza place? Is that the name that was on the alias list? What happened as a follow-up to this? Did you contact the pizza place? Did you talk to the front desk? Did you get surveillance? Did the five guys work for the company? Or did a guy who works there call his friends to join him on the delivery? Did anyone at the front desk of the Marriott have any connection to people at the pizza place? What pizza place was it? What security measures were taken to avoid something like this from happening? None of these questions get asked by any journalist or anybody involved with this documentary or anything. We just assume this is Michael Jordan, and he's so great that he and his buddies couldn't possibly take 20 years to put together an innocent, bizarre story with loose ends and holes in the story everywhere when they have no motive, apparently, to not tell the story 20 years ago anyway? I just... I. Now, if this story is true, then if I'm Michael Jordan and, I'm, and, and I have that security staff and that staff is making these kinds of mistakes, you're making changes to who's in charge right away, like right away. Instead, the documentary is doing features on different security guys and talking about how great they are, which I have no doubt those guys were all fantastic at what they did and the stories about those security guys are true, but we're supposed to believe in this one moment after all these years, they just forgot what they were doing? No, I'm not buying it. I, I'm not buying it. I, I've known a number of people in the NBA and concerts and things like that and people who work in, uh, in security for very serious stuff. And I'll tell you, the protocols and the precautionary measures that they take, it's insane. You'd be amazed the level that they go to. They want to know when doors are locked, what doors are locked, how they do their whole entire thing, what to expect in every situation. How many people are usually in this place at this time on this day? I mean, they get into crazy details when it comes to this high profile of protection for another person. And instead, they're treating it just like any group of guys ordering a pizza on a Tuesday night? No. So I I don't know what the real story is. I'm not trying to say I do. but And maybe we'll never actually know. But the story they've given us 20 and 22 years later is just really conveniently put together it has a ton of holes in it and it just doesn't add up and no one including the people in charge of that documentary had been asking any of the right questions which is what you have to do when revealing one of the greatest stories and mysteries in sports so yeah the 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 last dance i liked it i thought the last dance was good overall But man, I thought they dropped the ball here. They didn't ask any of the deeper questions. They just let them tell the story, them control the story, and then just shrug their shoulders and move on. It it just, I thought that was actually a really big failure in the documentary. And they had a chance, I thought, maybe to really get into some of the deeper details to a story that has way too many questions left unanswered. You know who did ask the right questions? Courtney Tanner of the Salt Lake Tribune. And that was award-winning work. Thanks for listening to the Tony Parks Podcast. Uh, feel free to follow me on all forms of social media at Tony Parks 801 and if you have any questions or comments, email me at TonyParks801 at gmail.com. If you like this episode and you like the podcast, hey, go ahead and give it five stars. Feel free to give me any kind of feedback. I absolutely love it, and uh, am excited to be a part of your day. This has been the Tony Parks Podcast on the Utah Podcasting Network.